for just about everything for the outdoors. Go to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Well, y'all, me and the fellas are back out of the mountains, and we found a pile of listener questions filling up the old Elk Bros mailbox. Questions on calling, elk behaviors, season-specific strategies, questions on the wind, scenarios, finding elk, and many, many more. So this show is totally dedicated to you, our listeners. So let's get this party rocking and start cutting some mustard on those questions. That discussion... And our thanks to you, our listeners, with our awesome Elk Bros shout-outs. So, my friends, pull up a chair, adjust your volumes just right, and welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting, brought to you by ElkBros.com, with your host, Gilbert Ornelas, and Elk Hunting coach, Joe Gilly. You want to hunt elk? They live to hunt elk. Their goal is to share with you what they have learned grinding it out for over 35 seasons doing what they love. So come on into camp and set a spell. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunters. Hello there, everyone. It's your first time with us. Glad to have you. Hope you enjoy our show. And as always, for those blue-collar hunters following us, our show, and grinding it out with us every week, welcome back to Elk Camp. I'm Gilbert Ornelas, the host of your show, and from Katy, Texas. That's right. We got the leader of the Venezuelan mafia, Mr. Luis Gonzalez, and from the DFW, the northern leader of the Venezuelan mafia, Mr. Manano Graterón. New Mexico, that's right. We got your elk hunting coaches in the house. We've got the ninja, Mr. Leroy Chavez in the house. Give us a deuce, Mr. Leroy. And we got WWJGD is in the house. We got what would Joe Gillia do? He's got his new do, me too, and everybody else is rocking, ready to go tonight. And if you're watching this on YouTube, 
Yes, he actually paid for that haircut. Beto, <laughs> in this world, you keep introducing him as a leader of the Venezuelan mafia, bro. Uh, somebody's got to be the South leader and the North leader. Y'all got it all. Bro, you got to, yeah, look, man, everybody's like, you know, we, we've been pinning your photograph up on the wall behind us. Like Ben M- Laden. MIA, man. I mean, people are like, <laughs> Mama, Mina, what's his name? Minima. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, see, they miss Mama. me. They miss me. <laughs> they they sure do, no. brother. What he's trying to say is they've forgotten about you. No, no. no. In, in fact, we've been working on Chav and his beaches and stuff. I mean, Chav <laughs> been trying to, you know, ha- have take your place, but it just doesn't work. Uh, you know, it not near as good. Work. <laughs> oh, so tonight man guys we have um we have so many questions that we've gotten and so many cool questions and there's people out there right now that are um they're hunting elk right now with rifle either you've just finished up that late season october or you got hunts coming up in november if you're fortunate to have any elk hunts in december i envy you i actually think myself that is the best time to kill a big bull is right wow. in December. Um, we can talk about that some other time, but there's still people out there doing stuff. So there's a little bit different modes. There's some things happening there. And we do have questions. Some of these go back to September. Some of them happen in October. We have people that are concerned about what's happening in these late hunts. So <clears> it's, uh, it's a really cool time. And not everybody, you know, is – you know, able to sleep in a, you know, like a mobile motel and hunt pig. The mafia mobile. Yeah. The you know. mafia mobile. I call it the mafia motel, man. Myself, <laughs> for sure. The mafia motel transcend, oh baby. I mean, it was an amazing trip we had last weekend. And uh, the fellas ain't tent camping no more, Joe. Uh, you know. The boys I, have stepped up. It's It's not even right, man. I mean. I think it's a sin, isn't it? I, in- <laughs> I don't know, bro. I know one thing. It was nice to have that air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> 90 degrees. Beto was sinning every day we and asking there. for forgiveness every night. Air conditioning? Last time you invited us, it was like 18 degrees. Ooh, didn't oh, it need was no hot. air conditioning. It, it, it got above 90 for, yeah, it was wow. 99 one day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was 99. We hunted at 48 that morning, and it was 99 that afternoon. Wow. Well, yeah. I tell you what, guys, uh, uh, it's good to see everybody's mug again. I haven't seen y'all in Absolutely. a little while. So uh, we're all back together. We got some people waiting for some information, so let's rock this thing out, man. You know what time it is. It's time shout for our Elk Bro shout-out. Shout if you're new to our show, this is just shout-outs to a few cities with the most listeners topping our charts this week. Yes, Joe. sir. And I thought it would be kind of cool. We haven't done this in a while to see <laughs> what cities and countries since January of you know 2022 have made our – top 10 listening cities and countries to this point. So uh, we'll do that real quick here. In place, in in spot number 10, we have Chicago, Illinois. Albuquerque was just out of reach, man. Oh, man, the 505 didn't show out. It was right there with Chicago, man. We're going to send some people (laughs) over. But uh, in spot number nine, Phoenix, Arizona. Awesome, man. Number eight, 
you know, ever since the dude left Cali, everybody else has gotten into hunting. Los Angeles, California. (laughs) (laughs) God left some remnants. Yeah. Number seven, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Number six, Houston, Texas. H-Town. Representing. Texas. Number five, Salt Lake City, Utah. Woohoo! Ahead of Salt Lake in the fourth position was Seattle, Washington. Wow. Number three, ahead of Washington, our rosy buddies over there, Portland, Oregon. Right. And then we've got the battle of the big D's for one and two. Who got it, man? Who got it? Well, we're just going to say <laughs> Manano hasn't been doing his job up there because oh. runner up for the top <clears throat> listening city was Dallas, Texas, with Denver, Colorado rounding out the the lead. Wow. Wow. Yeah. There you go, yes. there you go man. Yeah. So that's yeah. even with Manano never listening to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Uh, that's I, impressive. I, don't wanna, I don't have to listen. I'm part of it. I'm I, yeah. I, I made think, a podcast. I think Dallas only lost by two listens, and that was Manano. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no, man. I want the whole family listening. Let's jack this up, man. So, uh, yeah, man. I, and for the countries in the tenth spot, blew my mind. Um, over there in Maori land, New Zealand. No New Zealand. way! Wow. wow, cool, dude. New Zealand, New Zealand we want to come see you. We're gonna we put need a to film go. crew together. Oh, we're gonna man. come. We're gonna oh, come see a, you guys over there, red stag hunting. What a yes, beautiful sir. country, man! Beautiful country. Yeah. And the ninth spot, Singapore. Singapore. Oh, wow, man! Thailand. Number eight was Spain. España. Yeah, mm. you know they used to be up higher until we got the Venezuela mafia, and they were like. We don't want to listen to those guys, man. They went down like that, man. But number seven, number seven was Finland. Wow. Hey, let, let me stop you there, Joe. <laughs> Luis said when he when you mentioned Spain, he said the, the the Madre Patria. So you know that is why he can't he cannot be the Venezuelan leader. You know, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. he's not from cool. Venezuela. He's not cool. Wait a second, but I believe he has like dual. That that is what yeah. he says that he's coming from the king or something like the king. Not related, whatever. But uh, there's a reason why your English sucks is hey. because you speak yeah. Spanish. Well, I'm from Venezuela, proudly. Venezuela. How many languages? Do you speak, please. Three. I speak three. Three languages. Well, yeah. uh, we don't we don't include you as speaking English. So what's the other three? <laughs> no, yeah, Portuguese. English is one. Portuguese, Spanish, and Spanish. English. Yeah, and I thought you French speak. was my first language, but I I can't. I understand it, but I can't speak it. What about Italian? No Italian. First language. Italian. He can oh, muddle wow. through some Italian. And it's aren't you nice. aren't you of Italian nationality? Yes, Italian descent. Yeah, yeah. That's the only part of you I like. Man. Yeah, I guess. Right, so, I, <laughs> in place number six. We have France. Wow. In look place at that. number six. In fifth place. We gates. We have Germany. Wow. <laughs> wow. Germany's showing up. Number in fourth position is Australia. Okay. Them boys down in under getting with Third it. position, Mexico. Come on. And in uh, the second position, United Kingdom. 
And in first position, all of our brothers to the north, man. Those Canucks up there from Canada. 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 Travis O'Shea and Canucks are showing up, baby. Yep, yep. So uh, let's get with it on the listening cities. Chav, you got number one. Okay. uh, This top listening city thrived as a shipbuilding port and was an early manufacturing center for iron, nails, hats, and carriages. Textile production flourished after 1812 but declined in the 1920s. It is one of the northernmost towns in Massachusetts and is a suburb of Boston. The name comes from the ancient Norman culture in Great Britain and France. It was originally derived from the old French given name or nickname, uh, Amis or Ami, which means friend. And this is Am- uh Amesbury, Massachusetts, and I think Joe's got somebody who lives up there. <laughs> yeah. And, and, a, and a bundle coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Granddaughter number two is due um, December 12th. Yay. My daughter and my son-in-law, um, Brittany and Quentin, live in Amesbury. And, uh, are they really? Yeah. Wow, that's what's so funny was I called her today and I go, your town is our top listening city. And she Yay. goes, you know it ain't me. <laughs> you know it ain't me. She's like, no, Dad, man, I love you guys, but way too much testosterone. <laughs> That's funny, dude. Yeah, yeah. Awesome I come in as a top listening city. Yeah, she's like, what a coincidence, man. That's crazy. She's like, why would people in Amesbury be listening to you? <laughs> I'm like, well, come on. Give us some kind of credit, man. Yeah, man. There's a bunch of good like guys that like elk hunting that live up there. Hey, guys and gals, man. You never know. Yeah. Well, Joe, this next city is known as the ice cream capital of the world. This city is officially designated as such and it is the home to Wells Enterprise, which makes Blue Bunny ice cream. Founded by Fred H. Wells in 1913. In 1891, a wealthy and influ- influential railroad businessman hosted a party in which the women at the event were asked to name the town. The group <laughs> submitted an acronym using the first letter of their first names. The acronym was L-E-M-A-R-S. Lemars, Iowa, <laughs> the home of Blue Bunny ice cream. Man, if they'd only had three women at that party, that could have been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> they might have been in trouble. <clears throat> that's that's interesting how they put that together. That's very Blue very Bunny ice cream is good ice cream. Yeah. Not to get it confused with Blue Bell, but yeah. <laughs> Blue Bunny is good. Uh, and where's Blue Bell from? It is from Brenham, Texas. Just a oh. throw joke. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> when, hey. you come to, when you come down here to H-Town, come see us. you got to go to the Blue Bell Factory and go check it out, man. If you hey, like I'm, ice cream. I'm there, dude. I'm there, man. You got German chocolate ice cream? Oh, they got every flavor you can oh, think of. Oh, dude, bro. I'm there, man. All right, next up, this top listening city is located in western New York State. It was first settled in 1806 by Joseph McQuirr. And became known as McClure Settlement. Uh, it was finally named after William Temple Franklin, grandson of Benjamin Franklin. Recently, the Great Lakes Cheese Company broke ground for a 480,000 square foot, 500 million state-of-the-art manufacturing and packing plant. Wow. And this facility is scheduled to open in 2024 in Frankenville, New York. 
Wow. 480,000 square foot. Wow. 500 million. 500 million. <laughs> That's a lot of cheese, baby. That is yes. a lot of cheese. A lot of cheese. Yep. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, did I say wow. that? Joseph McCure? I, you know, I don't know. Tab typed that out. So I don't know if it's McClure, McCure, but you, it's pro- you know. McClure. Probably McClure. Hey, and Joe, uh, any of your descendants, man, uh, they'll get my name wrong, too, so don't worry about it, man. <laughs> Very cool. That is like dead center in the middle of, of New York, a little further south, but south of Buffalo really? and all that. It's, yeah, that, so, pretty wild looking. Uh, man, that was really confused me because I saw Great Lakes, so you think Wisconsin, right? Right. You know, but yeah. this is Frankenville, New York, yeah. doing this. It's in the panhandle. Wow, that's crazy, man. Pretty cool. Awesome, awesome. This top listening city, it's a suburb of Baltimore and a destination for outdoor enthusiasts. But the Pasco Valley State Park, Chaff, why, why do you get all this? <laughs> you <laughs> nailed it. You killed it. You nailed it, you nailed it dude. Which extends for 32 miles on the Patapasco River and a must visit. The city underwent many name changes before settling on its current name in 1930. The town was named after a, the local district attorney, Elias Glenn. The city was known as Tracy Station, Myrtle, Glensburn, Glensbourne, before it settled on Glen Burnie, Maryland. <laughs> Wow. Glen Burnie, Maryland. Glen Burnie and then Glen Burnie. Oh. I don't know if I pronounce it. Yeah. No, it'd be great, bro. Glen Burnie. They got them all. And I, I uh, forgot to give the E-haw for E-haw. E-haw. Burry, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, it, it's so cool. We got, I mean, guys, sometimes we forget. Um, you start to take for granted after doing all these cities. Take a look at where all these came from. Massachusetts. Yeah, Iowa, Maryland. New York, yeah. Maryland, yeah. y'all. Um, we All are America. we are only here because of y'all, our listeners That's out it. there, yeah. and we are just so proud to see. People from all of these places all across the United States um, tuning in, listening in uh, to what we have to share and what we have to teach and to all of our, our BS, man. We thank you guys so much. Uh, that's that's really special. So with that said, we're going to get this party started. We're going to jump into the content. And uh, we are, like we said, this is from our Elk Bros mailbox. And uh, what we'll do is uh, each one of us will just take these as we go along. I didn't assign no names to them. Um, but, uh, you know, we've got a lot here to answer. We'll do as much as we can. If we have a whole bunch more, we might do a second version of this. We have a lot of things on the horizon. You guys don't know, um, we actually, I'm supposed to be scheduling to do a calling um, show with um Bo Brooks and uh and and uh Travis and myself man so that's going to be you know that's going to be a lot of fun to do that as well that's going to if be y'all need a third wheel brother I'll show up all, all right. right man we'll rock and roll it so um let's do with this and I will I'll go ahead and jump off with the top one somebody else get ready to take the next one this is from Brad Dormady and he said, when you talk about early season, you guys are talking around September 1st. Do you think those same early season strategies will also work in late August around the 20th? Yes and no. 
Um, so the thing is, is when you're talking about August 20th, it's starting to happen there, but also bulls at that time, because you got to remember during the summer, bulls are bachelored up, right? And what starts to happen is bulls now at a certain point, they're starting to feel it a little bit. They're rubbing off. Once they start rubbing that uh, velvet off their horns and they're starting to, you know, uh, start to develop that itch for heading towards or that transition to the rut, you know, then they start um, some of the behaviors change a little bit. But there is a period all that time and up until they actually start moving to locate cows when they start splitting up from their bachelor groups. And, and, and we're going to talk about that a little bit because not all of them split up. It almost becomes like a an age boys club, right? Where the bigger, you know, biggest bulls kind of split off. And some of those guys that are the, the same, you know, uh, the same age kind of hang out Mm -hmm. together and stuff, but Mm -hmm. they are in more of a routine, right? Um, during that summer where they're basically going to be in areas that they're going to stay in. They almost have their places they want to drink. They're going to have their places where they're going to eat. They're going to have their places where they want to bed. So they are, you are able to pattern bull elk during the summer so much better. And you can patter them all the way up. Some of them, you know, it might be right there around the 20th, 25th, right in there where some of them start to move off and start to go into that transition a little bit in our area. Now, this yeah, is the thing I was going to say, Joe, that that could be totally different up on the Canadian border, right? It, it could be different there. It could be different in Arizona, you know, yeah. but I know guys are seeing elk like on their, on, uh, on their trail cams, you know, at the same wallow, they're seeing those bulls over and over and over again. Yeah. And then yeah, right there, man, about the middle of August towards that 20th and that 20th, they kind of start disappearing off there, right? Yeah. So can those strategies work? Absolutely. Because I really think in that first 20th to the 30th, you have some of the same things happening, and you might even have, just like we do at September 1st, you have some of those cows that start to come in heat or those early cows that come in estrus, and that's all it takes is to, you know, to set off a and change yeah. those boys' minds from being buddies to not so buddyish, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, I, I absolutely think, and take a look at this year on our season, right? I mean. Yeah. I think we had a lot of summertime bulls around us, uh, <laughs> Joe, and they left. And they, they went on looking for, for, you know, early, early fall cows and, and they left that area because there was a lot of sign that was old sign, right? Not years old, but, you know, month, week old, three weeks old. I mean, a lot of blown up trees and, then they were gone, you know. So, yeah, uh, yeah and I think, I think, yes, yeah, some of those tactics are going to work because they're early season tactics, you know. Right. Um, but depending on where you're at in the on the globe, uh, in the United States, depends on uh, how many states, Joe. Do you know how many of them allow them to hunt into August? Um, um, well, it, you know, I I, I didn't think. Know some of the Utah, Utah states. Utah has some that. That yep. happens that early, like Idaho, that. maybe. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure exactly on those, but some of them are, you know, starting a little bit early. And I know Travis and them boys start in the latter part of August up there in, in the uh, Alberta. Oh, I think yeah. yeah. So, yeah. but the thing is, is this is 
is look, you gotta have those multiple tools in your toolbox. Yeah. Be ready for spot and stock. If you're finding that you have a wallow that a bull is hitting, you know, that you're, that you're seeing all the time that bull's coming in that area and hitting that area or you're seeing all that sign, that might be a good proposition for you that early. If you can, you know, get some place where you can use the glasses if you're in some of that more open country. It depends on what kind of country you're in, whether you're in the thick New Mexico, you're in the thick northern Idaho, or whether you're in more open area in Arizona or, you know, some of those places in Wyoming. It just depends on what you're doing. So you got to have multiple <clears throat> tools in your toolbox, and you got to apply those to the situation. This year, we had bulls that were very quiet. I mean, even in their responses, very quiet, Mm -hmm. you know, um, Vinny, our brother Vinny, um, up there in, uh, (coughs) works in Alaska, lives in Washington, you know, um, Vinny's like, dude, I don't get it, man. He said, we were in this one area that they have always acted this way and they've always done this and we've always been able to get that. And he said, they weren't responding that we weren't finding the elk where we should. It was like everything was, and you always hear this. People always say the rut is late, right? Um, I don't know. It could be. It <laughs> might be in one area. It might not be in another area. Yeah. So a rut is not an overall thing. It just kind of happens where those cows come in. Estimate. Where they're at. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And One of the things I think will help Brad too, Joe, is if he will go over to our Elk Bros Adventures Academy and check that out. That right there can solve a lot of your problems, brother. Get on our academy. Check it out. Joe goes over some unbelievable content on early season <laughs> bull hunting, man. So y'all can check it out at elkbros.com. <laughs> You're just shameless, dude. <laughs> You're just shameless. Uh, and, so- and look, before, and before Luis starts, I can't tell you how many of y'all out there, listeners, that I heard from this year that just listens to our podcast religiously, has gone through all of them. And I, we got so many emails and photos of people said, I listen to y'all all the time. And my first year, my second year, and I got it done. So you can absolutely listen to us. But, you know, I tell you what, we do give a lot of nuggets and stuff in that in that academy. Oh, it's huge. Luis? So next up, we got Jason Bradley. Now, are you sure, sure it was Jason or Jason with an E? <laughs> I know a Jason Bradley. Me too. Oh, do you really? Yeah. Yes. We know a Jason Bradley. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I was asking. So, but anyhow, so his question is, I was listening to your Elk Bros Adventure show and it seemed like you moved from areas that you had found elk. I've also heard you say you shouldn't leave elk to find elk. Is there something I'm missing? Oh, whoa. Good question, man. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, and you know what? It, this is exactly something that Chav and I was talking about, you know, because as a general rule, you, why would you leave elk to go find elk? I mean, elk. Right? And yet you look at us and we were like in some areas where we had an encounter or we had uh, an encounter here, an encounter there, and we ended up going to another area, and and I and and I just want to say you don't leave elk to find elk unless or except, all right. Yeah. Yeah. And and what you got to remember is Asterisk. this, Jason, um, is that elk hunting is a game of odds. 
You know, it's a game of encounters. The more encounters you have, the more opportunity you have to close the deal, right? Um, you're going to blow so many opportunities. Well, we were busting a hump. And, yes, we had an encounter here, an encounter there, but really working our butt off. So what we were looking for was we were looking for that pond that was stocked a little better. Yeah, right? we got a load of them. Mm-hmm. We were looking to improve our odds. Yeah, right. and I think I think that's a better way of saying – in my mind, what I was thinking is like, look, the numbers were low. Right. Yeah. And, and what we found wasn't right. Yeah. And, and so in the, the little encounters we had, you know, you, you couldn't see a lot of signs. So at that point, early in the hunt, you divide and conquer to, you know, to try to see where there's more opportunities. And then when we had the encounter that the day that Joe Monano and I went, up there in the hike of hell, um, we, we we realized that even if we were to, I mean, yes, we found elk there, but to get there, it'd take half a morning, and to get out of there with an elk, it would just not logistically wouldn't have made sense. Um, so they just I didn't think, want to do the hike again. It only took a hour and a half. It is not want to do the hike again. It was brutal, though. In, in, let, let me put it this way. Let, let me put it this way, bro. An hour and a half. Let me put it this way, Joe. Uh, we saw elk there, but I would never go back. <laughs> <laughs> and look, man, these guys, you got to understand something. These two dudes, they love to kill elk, man, and they love to eat elk, and we're all that way. And look, even my fat butt, if I can yeah, get there, I'm going to go there, right? But I'm telling you, the what we found in that area that we left was lots of blowdown, lots of really hard navigable stuff. So a lot of it we left by necessity because we knew even if we did kill something in there, it'd take an act of Congress or a helicopter to get it out, you know. And uh, so we had to make some decisions on the fly. A lot of it, a lot of it predicated on, yeah, we. We're good at calling in singles, but man, it makes it really yeah. hard when you've bumped them and now they're gone out of that area and there's not a right. lot of other signs to support and, it. And that's the other thing I was going to tell you is, is when we talk about our hunts, like especially, I think they were listening to our, um, our adventure show. So yeah. that was our coach hunt. And when you are dealing with multiple players in a camp, you know, you sometimes have to, you have to have areas so that you can move from one place to the other so that you don't just blow out an area or, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you got to let an area rest a rest. little bit, yeah. you know, um, so that animals, you know, relax back down if they got bumped or you don't want to keep putting scent in there and push them out. Or... We did something similar with the lower part of the, uh, uh, the area where we were hunting uh, on the first hunt as well. Mm-hmm. We yeah. kind of let it sit for a couple of days, and, you know, and 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 sure enough, that's where you kill your bull. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we came back, so I, I think he's got a great observation, yeah. and and it is you know clarity is is required here for that. Yeah. Uh, but another good example is what we did in Colorado last year. You know, the area where Manano and I started hunting, you know, right there towards the end of the hunt. That's where we concentrated most of our efforts because after you know realizing that 
that's that was probably the best spot. We were kind of in a way taking turns and hitting that area from different angles until you know. The other thing you got to consider is just because you're finding an elk in an area doesn't mean that the efficiency or the ability to kill that elk is the best situation. <laughs> so sometimes they can be in a place where um, it's, you're just spinning your wheels because of either how the wind's blowing out that day or, you know, whether you're bordering private property and jumping onto that or, yeah. you know, so there's other Too things you've got to consider every day before you go into a certain area because some areas are more conducive to the morning hunt. Yep. Some areas are more conducive to the, the evening, evening hunt. Yep. Some areas are only conducive if you got winds coming out of the west. Yep. Or it's going to be a situation where you have, you know, winds coming out of the east, south, or something like that. So it's always important to have your multiple plans, your multiple areas. And even though you know that elk are in plan in, in area A, Might well, if, that, if everything's not conducive, that day for that then you're going to let a just chill and you're going to go but really for us moving to different places was especially in our first hunt was we had to locate lots of areas that our coached group would be able to get to to be able to hunt you know so a lot of it is just really just again we were kind of hunt scouting on the hunt as well and trying to locate a little bit lower hanging fruit i guess that's the best way to say it some of that fruit is really difficult to get to and trying to find something where maybe there's a rut going on in a certain canyon or there's a little bit more elk in an area those are reasons that yes you would just because you're finding one or two in here you can't just keep chasing them around all the time you might need to find a little bit greener pastures okay yeah and they'll leave too you put enough heat on them they're out yep they'll leave the area so uh we have kurt hargens uh indiana native Having listened to many of your podcasts, I am wondering whether or not calling can be effective in late November. Also, does calling play as much a role in a rifle hunt as an archery hunt? Thanks, guys. Love the podcast. What do you well, think, well, I think that, uh, you know, it probably won't be as effective, but it can be effective uh, in November, late November. Uh, you know, the uh the bulls have pretty much you know left left the uh the cows if it's late late november but uh you know they they still sound off every so often uh so i i you know it can it can probably work either way uh but i don't think it's as effective as an archery hunt but there is a role there is a role in calling at that time especially if you want to stop an animal or getting the there you go. Oh, definitely. Yes, definitely so. And that that's the big thing is is so I do I guide all the rifle hunts and and uh one thing that I find is just just two different animals, two different beasts, right? So I always have calls with me, but <laughs> In October, I might do a location bugle. And once I get them located, that's pretty much what I'm doing until I just move in on them. And I'm not going to do bull stuff. It's I'm pretty much going to cows, and I'm staying cow talking. If I was to do anything in November, it's going to be cow calls, if, if anything. But it's like Gil said, I, I pretty much have my cow calls to either stop an animal or to get an animal to expose themselves. 
Um, it's not like I'm going through the woods cow calling trying to get something to come into me. That's not even though now Chav and I have been in situations where we've gone and just messed around and actually brought a group of cows into us just by cow talking, not doing yep. like rut mews and and stuff like that. We were just just sounding like a herd and got some cows to come into us. I, no matter what, you can always bring cows with uh, with a lost calf. You can yeah. always. You know. Especially if you're late season cow hunting, yeah. you'd get that lost calf going. She's going to try to run you over to find that calf. But I would not make it my number one source, the calls there. I, right. I would, you know, really that's when I talk rifle hunting and I start talking late season, it's different. Whereas you want to cover as much country as possible. You want to use your glasses as much as possible. Um, you really want, I mean, a lot of people, man, will just cover that country to look into areas and the glass areas and then get by. And it's all about just trying to locate them. And now you're trying to locate them instead of the north sides. You're looking at the south and you're looking at the west. You're looking at if there's snow at the winds, you know, swept slopes out there. Um, they're still going to be lower down, you know, at a certain time of day. And they're going to be a little higher up. But um it's it's a little bit different. You're going to find big bulls that are by themselves. You're going to find some of them smaller bulls still with the herds at that time. So, uh, yeah, it's the calls are not your way of finding elk. And really, I try to tell people that's the skill set you need to have even during the archery season because yeah. if they're quiet. You got to have other methods of locating those animals, but it's like different places. But that, you know, that's a great question. I've asked myself that too. I mean, obviously I have not, you know, been, you know, we, we, I've been on the archery side as well. And I wonder, man, if it's, if it's so, you know, if, if we can bring it in so close with archery, why can't you do that and during rifle season, right? And so I, I think that's, Gander that's a great, yeah. Yeah. Great I mean, question. And I've heard bulls bugling and sounding off um, in December, but that doesn't mean I'm going to bugle to try to get them to respond yeah, to me or to yeah. come in to me. Yeah, that's yeah. not going to happen. So right. they're not in that mode at that time. Mm. Okay. Mm. And, in fact, the big if you're hunting big bulls, you can forget that, man. Um, they aren't in any mode to be around anybody, man. They're just like, Healing they up. just want to be by themselves. They just want to chill. They don't want anybody bothering them. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're just, uh, they're off to be on their own in some gnarly looking places sometimes. But late yeah. December, late December, those guys are eating so hard. I mean, they're yeah. going to be out longer in the morning. They're going to be out earlier in the evening. Um, if you're looking for other bulls that are bacheloreded up, Chab and I have seen Numbers of 12 bulls bachelored up together. It's a yeah. whole lot easier to spot them. And we've seen them in all different age classes, from big all the way down to small bulls. We got Cody Wells from Lindell, Texas. Lindell, Texas. Uh, I have, yeah, I have heard you guys said, say over and over that you have called counted coups and kill elk that other people are driving or hunting past. With that limited needs, I would like to be able to capitalize on these areas without having to cover 15 miles to stumble onto them. That means I need to know what else do after being bumped or pressured. So here's my question. When a group of elk is bumped or avoiding hunting pressure 
and road traffic, how far do they usually move before resuming normal to semi-normal behavior? I understand it can depend on number of things, but generally speaking, do they move a couple of miles more, less? Do they favor mo moving back up to higher elevation or lower? Or would the distance be better measured by features as in moving to the closest cluster or off desirable features? It's a good question, man. So this is a great question, and I think we all faced this situation in our hunt uh, when we encountered these, I mean, unbelievable, like, biblical portion, like Beto says, yeah. blow down. Uh, I think it's a matter of uh, they, they, they moved away from from the high elevation of, because of the blowdown, I don't believe they move away because of the traffic or, or these joy riders because we got a lot, lot of them, but we, we had a few encounters. So that means they still there. They are, you know, a bit bothered because of the traffic and all the hunters, the pressure, but uh, the, the one that moved, they, they, they move away. They went uh down. I mean, miles. It, was, it wasn't because of pressure, though. That was just they moved out of the air because they couldn't travel to it. Yes, yeah. because of the blowdown. Yeah, because of the blowdown, but not, not because of the traffic or the right. or the pressure. No, I think the um, traffic limits. I think the traffic puts them into a nocturnal mode. I think they don't want to move around with all that traffic and pressure. So they're they, learning. They yeah. set they set down and they don't have to move around that pressure. Uh, when it's when it's nighttime, it's there is no pressure there. So I, yeah. I think what it does is it forces. And this is my own opinion. Yeah. I think it forces them into a nocturnal movement mo mode when they see that type of pressure, like we saw. Now, normal hunting pressure, I think they run off 150 yards and watch the traffic go by and get right back to it. Especially if they're in, around a lot of traffic all the time. Well, I think you hit the hit it on. Yeah, the I think Gilbert hit it. You know, perfectly. They don't take off. You know, some people think that if you spook them, they're miles away. But no, nah, they just go a few hundred yards and, and settle settle down. Now the, Especially if the, they're used the, to traffic. Yeah. Now, the situation we were in this year because of the blowdowns, you know, the elk just uh, as a whole, you know, found a safety area away from that wind. You know, and a lot of them didn't come back because of the travel routes are pretty tough. Yeah. You know, uh, this uh, – uh, this past Sunday, Joe and I went to Springer, uh, which is a little town outside of Summer, to, to do our Sunday brunch. And uh, we saw two elk herds that were out in the open. And, Why uh, and it was really windy, really windy that day. So I think they left the uh, their shelter, their, their, you know, with a lot of trees and stuff. They left the shelter because they weren't able to hear anything there they went to an open area where they Much could movement. look or look around and, and see, see. Mm -hmm. you know so i think that happened up in the mountains too uh, the majority of the elk in that particular area took off grinders tuning in thank you for listening to the blue collar elk hunting podcast our goal is to share our knowledge and help you flatten that learning curve so that you too can have some of the very same incredible experiences that have given all of us here at Elk Bros a lifetime of memories. If you like what you hear or see, 
You can get all of this information plus so much more from our Basecamp Elk Hunting Training Camp, the first in a series of online courses from our Blue Collar Elk Academy. Our Basecamp Training Camp allows me to use my coaching style and share almost 40 years of elk hunting experiences successfully hunting elk on public lands as well as over 20 years guiding hunters of all ages and experience levels. This course will be like nothing you have ever experienced in concept and structure using success-based coaching techniques that will elevate your confidence and skill sets. Our camp will prepare you specifically from that final moment most in your control, those final minutes or seconds the elk is in front of you, backwards through each step and level, allowing you to see visualize, understand, and relate every coaching point to what lies ahead, the next step, the next thought process, the next success. Because, y'all, you've already been there. You know what it looks like. By tapping my 30 years of teaching and coaching experience, our camps are developed considering multiple learning modes with text, visuals, audio, as well as video. And Basecamp will benefit those new to elk hunting all the way to the 10 to 15 year vet. So if you are looking for that one thing to help you fill that tag this year, invest in the most important piece of equipment there is, you and your elk hunting knowledge. You can find the Blue Collar Elk Hunting Academy and the Base Camp Training Camp at elkbros.com. That's E-L-K-B-R-O-S dot com. Keep dreaming of the screaming, believing and achieving, and most of all, Keep grinding. Some were safe, and a lot of them didn't come back. So yeah, it. I, look, so here's the other thing too: is you gotta. We always see things in a certain perspective, but how far elk go when they're bumped, and and how you know soon they come back, and things like that, has to do with a lot of things. How how much use is in that area all the time, how open or how dense is that area, because the thicker the woods, the less distance they're going to go. Um, the more open the area, like when you start getting those alpine areas up there and you bust a group of elk, next thing you know, they're going like two over mountains over yeah. on that alpine, man, because it's so wide open and and they're vulnerable. Elk are going to go where they can feel secure, where they're not they're secure. So Right. And, and that's what Chad's talking about. I mean, that group of elk, y'all, it was a herd. I don't know. It was probably 150 head, you know, yeah, and they're out standing up in the middle of the prairie, like muskox would basically, yeah. you know, and then yeah. we saw another group that was bedded in the middle of the prairie because they were most safe there because, um, the wind, when they were in the brush, too much was moving. They couldn't use their ears. They just didn't feel safe. And they're down there where predators can get to them. So right. they, they changed that. And Yo, yeah, go ahead, Manano. We, we got a, a good example of, of our uh, season on uh, Colorado. Mm-hmm. The bull that, that you, uh, that you saw that was the Luis's bull. Mm-hmm. So you were there. You can't kill on him. And then Luis killed that bull in the, that, that bull in the same exact spot. Area. And yeah. then Luis drew on the Beto's bull on the same exact point. We both did. You and I both drew on that bull. Yeah, I drew on him. Yeah. And then Beto killed him uh, two days, 
two days after later. And I, and I want people to realize that what, what Manano's talking about, where we killed, most people were driving by. There was a oh, ton yeah. of traffic in that area. And, yeah, and right. there were people camping, and we killed elk. Even though people are going two miles back, three miles back, four miles back, and they're leaving a camping area like NASCAR, we killed elk within a mile of those camps. Yeah. So those elk, you know, felt secure, number one, where they were. Um, yeah, they feel people like so. intruding on them. If they got bumped because of the type of terrain, the way it was up, down, thick and everything, yeah, they didn't right. go too far, right? Mm -hmm. So if you end up with a lot of pressure with people, and it's different rifle season and yeah. archery season, um, I think that people have a tendency to show themselves more during the rifle season and walk a lot on top of those ridges to glass and stuff like that. And when you start seeing a lot of people on all these ridges, it'll start pushing elk in a direction. And you're right on that. You know, Cody, if you're, if, if you're in an area and you know elk are staying down in the bottom and people are going to put pressure on it down there, find a saddle, man. Find a saddle that they're going to go over to get into the next ridge or the next yeah. drainage on the other side. You know, you don't have to go that far. And, you know, pay attention to those areas, man. I killed my bull this year. I could hear the traffic from the highway. I could hear voices from a house three quarters of a mile away. Um, there was a forest road. Yeah. I mean, how far was a forest road that you guys came in from to get access into there? I'm far. Oh. And there was another four-wheeler road that you could access off yeah. the highway. Yeah. There was traffic all around where I killed this bull. And called them in an area where they were bedded off in just a little hidden canyon, right? So, um, yeah, just because bulls and, and elk do not just run off and, and disappear into an area. Now, um, I can tell you this. Elk are going to move a lot more during the rut than they are in those other times of years because they're more predictable before and after the rut once they start staying in an area. If you have a bull that, an old bull that is kind of holed up in a place where he can have security, food, and water, he's going to kind of stay there. But during the rut, not only are hunters pushing them, but other bulls are pushing them as well. All right? So... It, it in just, some areas, they just move through, mm -hmm. right? They don't stay there. They just move through that area to get to a destination, right? So those areas like that are just, they're going to get, they're not being bumped. They're just moving through that area to get to where they're going in their routines because they're, they're definitely creatures of habit. And, and as they mile, get in, yeah. Two miles, and it right? can be two or three, four miles, man. Depending on These where the water are. is that they got to be yeah. at, right? Yeah. Yeah. Joe, when we were hunting in our normal place, those elk will go three or four miles to go to water, mm -hmm. right? And you'd watch them, the migration of them moving back and forth. You know, we'd catch them in the middle of it. And I mean, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about one or two elk. I'm talking about 200 elk, you know? So, I mean, I, I, I hunted one time with Carl Gamage in the middle of the Valdez late December. My son was nine years old. And he had a cow tag for Logan. And we pulled up, uh, went up the Windy Gap side, came out the backside into the Valdez right there, and boom, you know, here we are. You're going to have to edit that joke. <laughs> 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 anyway, uh, 
here we here we are hunting. We came up this backside of this canyon, popped out into a big field where there we where we were, were with uh, Carl Gamage. And I say a big field. I mean we're talking a hundred and something acres, you know. And uh, <clears throat> here they are, all out in the middle of the Daggum Park, you know. I mean two hundred and fifty, three hundred head of elk, bulls, cows, you name it. And you know the pressure from public. The pressure from private, the whole nine yards, it, it, it moves the elk for sure, but they have their own thing that they do every day, right? And, uh, and it's dictated in the rut by how these bulls are pushing everybody around. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. And, and it depends like all their features. How close is their for their food, their water and their shelter? Do they have to go very far? Some of them will just, I mean, we also had elk that they would, travel up i don't know a half mile to bed down and then a half mile down to feed you know yeah. um you got some of them man that they got to go a lot further just depends on where their their features are right yeah. so you just got to kind of put all of that in like the elk in this lower area where we were hunting this this year they if for them to go to fresh water it was going to take them they had to go two miles to four miles just to get to fresh water so it just kind yeah, of depends I, on stuff I, I was going to mention that i mean that the, there's so many different ways to answer that question yeah. and the, it's so topography and climate dependent and you know resource dependent too you right. know and and so yeah i think you guys have touched on all the points but great question because it you know their travel routes are one their travel routes are one thing being bumped is another yeah absolutely right? and, and being and look being bumped by just a car driving by and being bumped by you know somebody shooting at them with a rifle way different deal you know? Yeah, and if you bump them out of their bedding area, they're going to go to another bedding area they feel safe. That yeah. could be in another drainage. It could be through Two the drainage. next drainage to the one over top of it. You know, yeah. so it just depends on how far they got to go. But honestly, I'm with Chad, man. I have watched elk, man, that have been bumped and they just ran up on a ridge about 200, 300 yards, just Stop. stayed there listening till everything calmed down, and then went back into what they were doing. I've seen animals go around camps, and I've seen them wait for vehicles to pass roads before they cross. So, see them walk stuff. through camps. Yep, see walk them walk right camp. through camp. Absolutely. Did you hear that, y'all? I've got to take a second from the show to tell you about the Enchantress call from Slayer Calls. This call, it gets you the most realistic bugles in cow calls. I have ever heard from an external. Look, the folks at Slayer Calls designed this external call to act just like a human tongue. So literally, with the push of a button, anyone can use this bad boy to bring those puppies running. Look, if you struggle with diaphragm calls or you have a partner that's just not able to call, y'all, this right here is your ticket to sucking those bulls right on in. If you want to try the Enchantress, which they're calling the Elk Slayer now, to put me in your freezer, then just use our code. It's one word, ElkBroSlay. Again, that's the code, ElkBroSlay, on SlayerCalls.com. Uh, it says, uh, Keenan, I guess it's Keenan Gibson. Yeah, he says, do you have a podcast that covers dealing with missed opportunities from wounding an animal? 
<laughs> well, we've all, listen, Keenan, if you bow hunt enough, you're all gonna, we're all gonna suffer this consequence, right? I mean, it just happened. We make some mistakes and things happen. Sometimes we feel like we put a, a really good shot on an animal and just for one thing or another, th- these things happen. So I want you to know you're not by yourself, my brother. Uh, he says, I shot a five by five bull at 50 yards at what seemed to be totally broadside. Shot looked and felt great. Bull ran off with my arrow, but I could tell it did not get great penetration. Okay, so that tells you something right there. He stopped after the arrow kicked out around 40 yards and just stood there for a few minutes. I was certain he was going to fall. He eventually slowly walked to a fence line, stopping at 82 yards, showing little desire to jump to jump it and reunite with his cow. I cow called to him to try to get a follow-up shot, but he, he wasn't interested and only open ground between us. So I couldn't close the distance. He jumped the fence approximately five minutes later and slowly walked in a 10 yard increment about out into a meadow of native grass before stopping in a thick patch a hundred yards out. He stood in the same spot for 13 minutes, acting like he wanted to bed there. It's because the bull's in shock, right? And uh, he says, then a road hunter came along the road, stopped his, stopping his truck, glassing him, and then shining a spotlight at him. Oh, no. I don't understand it. Why would he shine a spotlight at the bull? This spooked him, and he ran off into the timber, never to be seen again. I found my arrow, which had five inches of good red blood on it and five inches missing that he took with him. Thinking I got a single lung hit, I gave him four hours before attempting to recover. It had rained all day that day, only letting up before evening hunt. Then it rained again for about 15 minutes after sundown. Bye-bye blood trail. I was able to find a good pool of blood at the fence where he stood before jumping. That would be the last blood we found. I grid searched in the ridge and we saw him and we last saw him until 3 a.m. Slept for a couple hours, then resumed the search at sunrise and continued until sundown uh, of our last day. We had to leave home for the following morning of the following morning. The landowners continue to look for signs such as scavengers, uh, him returning to the herd, etc., but no luck. I was obviously distressed about it all week and was unable to let it go. Fortunately, my wife is very supportive and understanding and encouraged me to make the 10-hour one-way drive back to Colorado to look for him again, dedicated. This trip proved unsuccessful as well. The landowners did get a blurry pic of what we appeared to be a five-by-five bull with a spot on his front shoulder, the same height as my arrow was sticking out. They're going to continue to look for scavengers and for more trail cam pics of him. I got a feeling what happened, but I'm not going to say anything yet because I ain't read it. At this point, I'm assuming he lived and that my shot was further forward than I thought. I can live with that, mostly knowing that he didn't suffer or go to waste. You're right. But the missed opportunity doesn't make it any easier. Luis is going to talk about this. Uh-huh. As you can all relate, 
I have had an archery bull gold dream of mine for a very long time. Have worked so hard, trained so hard, studied and prepared for that opportunity only to have it fall through my fingertips. It's heartbreaking to say the least. Amen. I have, I have plenty of whitetail season and a second goal of three bucks in three different states and the season is still intact. However, I'm still hung up on this bull slash missed opportunity. If you have advice or recorded podcasts that could discuss this, please let me know. Appreciate all you guys do. P.S. I'm shooting a Matthews Triax, 70 pounds, gold tip hunter, 340 grain arrows, and was using <clears throat> a Grim Reaper mechanical broadhead. I know I should have used a G5 fixed <laughs> that was in my quiver instead. Lesson learned so, there. So before we before we even begin to answer this, yeah. I, I, look, that was a long piece to put in there, and I went through it, and I and I did not cut it down because I felt like there are thousands of people that this story fits. Right? 100%. And, yeah. I, and I bet there were so many people that were going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, you know, <laughs> um, it happens like this. And, and there, I mean, all the way to like the rain part, you know, everything. I mean, there's so many people that could relate to this story. So I thought it was critical. Had it happened to me this weekend, brother. Yeah. So. Yeah. I thought um, this was a great one to talk about, and uh, who wants to hit it first? Can I? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go, go ahead, my brother. <laughs> I knew it was in his wheelhouse, man. And it wasn't a 340-grain arrow. That was gold tip 340. Spine. So 340. Well, spine. That's yeah. a spine. Yeah, that's a spine, yeah. 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 So, so um, man, I, I know exactly, you know, to, to Joe's point, I'm reading this, and, and – I'm reliving, yep. yeah, reliving uh, similar situations. And I think any bow hunter that tells you they've never been through this, they're 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 going to be lying. I think we all have been through this, and and I respect and admire uh, you reaching yeah. out and and asking, and also oh, man, man, driving back to continue to look for that bull. Um, you know, I I hear you. I respect that. That is you know, admirable and, and, you know, we'd love to see that. So kudos to you for doing that. That um, bull's fine though, brother. Yeah. You're it. That's the other point I wanted to make. Absolutely. Your, your bull is alive. Uh, five inches of nothing. penetration is, it's nothing for a bull like that. You probably found initial blood, but you mean that bull is going to heal and it's going to be fine. And I think you know that too. Um, I, I get it. It, it sucks. Um, so, with all of that being said, um, you're shooting for, you're shooting for plan A. Uh, your arrow setup is for plan A. And sure, can you kill a bull with that setup you shot? Absolutely. Yes, you can. Um, your explain shot plays by shot plan A though. Huh? Well, explain what you mean by yeah. plan A. Yeah. Yeah. Meaning, meaning your shot placement has to be perfect. Yeah. Plan A. In order, in order to, to or be in able the right to kill place. Them. Yes, it has to be. Yeah, right yeah. shot in placement. Right your shot placement has to be perfect in, yeah. for that setup to work, right? Um, so, one of the things that I've learned after feeling the way you're feeling and starting to looking into this is like there's a way to improve your setup to where you know you're prepared for Plan B. 
when your shot placement is not perfect, but you're still getting penetration because you got a better arrow setup. So think of your, think of your arrows the same way as you think of your calipers on a gun. Yeah. You know, when you shoot a rifle and you're, you're planning to shoot a deer with a rifle, Beto, you're the rifle expert here. You know, what calipers do you shoot a deer with? Yeah, I mean everything from a two. I mean, for me, it, yeah, I'm gonna use a two seventy or a thirty caliber, right? Two seventy two, man. Yeah, yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, you can shoot them with a twenty two two fifty. You can shoot them with a two forty three, but you better be in the right spot. Place. Right. Same thing, right? So, what if you're gonna go and and hunt a, a moose or a buffalo? Yeah, three hundred, three hundred plus. You three thirty eight Lapua, right? Seven mag probably be on the lighter scale of that, man. It's but no shot different. Placement and bullet tides. No man. different, right? So, so he, here is an example. You you get a guy standing up in front of a crowd with a ping pong ball. Ping pong, okay? You, he bounces it off on the ground. He stands in front of the crowd, and he throws it at the crowd. People in the crowd are going to raise their hand to try to catch it, right? Try to catch the ball in the air, right? And uh, because, you know, it's just the same size as a ping pong ball. It's light, and they're going to catch it. Now the same guy grabs a golf ball, and... <laughs> You don't know what a ping pong ball is? Uh, bro, I'm just trying to stay with you, man. Oh, no, I got it. Okay, okay the next guy, the next guy has a, grabs a golf ball. Yeah. Almost the same size as a ping pong ball, but way heavier. Ooh, now yeah. the guy throws it at the crowd. <laughs> What's the crowd gonna do? They, the me, crowd man. knows that ball is gonna hit him harder. I'm okay? bringing a bowling ball, dude. Yeah, yeah oh, because, because that one, it's heavier. Okay, yeah. so you have to concentrate on what's actually making contact with the animal and you know, it's not, it's not how fast it's leaving your bow. It's not, it's just how it's being delivered to your animal. And so look, and, and there's great information out there. I'm reading a book that Mr. Kirkpatrick gave me. It's excellent to discern all this information. It's called, um, can't lose bow hunting. And it, it, it go, it, the book starts with an introduction very similar to yours. Yeah. And, and explaining uh, all the, all the science behind it in a, in a really nice way. And so my point to you, the G5 fixed, yeah, probably better than your Grim Ripper, but yeah. not, <laughs> probably not your best choice as far as broadheads go. So point being is when you plan for a good arrow setup, you got to think plan B. You have to have an arrow that is adequate for the game that you're taking. And plan B means that animal is a life target. It's going to move. You want to make sure that the arrow has the capability of penetrating um, all the way through, um, regardless of the angle in which that animal is. I mean, if you get through bone, then, you know, you want to make sure you get through it. This weekend, I shot a hog and uh, with with a heavy arrow setup. That arrow. How, how heavy was it? Tell me. This weekend was 710 grains. Yeah. All arrow weight. But that's my elk hunting setup. But I use it for hogs because hogs are extremely tough. Mm. And if you saw the, 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 the plates that these hogs that we killed this weekend had. Two inches thick. Yeah. 
even even that arrow wasn't on the second hog I shot didn't go all the way through because it went through the first plate it went through ribs on the side went through the organs and then broke completely the other shoulder um and dislodged the leg completely from the shoulder blade and just broke it shattered it okay now the arrow stuck in the hog but it made the two holes it broke through the through the um, plate on the other side. Now that hog ran probably 10 yards and landed about 10 seconds. That's so yeah, it broke my arrow. I was upset because those arrows are expensive when you build them that way, but it did its job. It, yeah. it, that arrow worked for plan B. If I would have shot that hog with any other arrow set up, it probably would have not gotten the penetration that this one did. So that's that's my rant, and I'm gonna stay off the podium now. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's I think it's perfect, brother. Because I, I, you know, I'm gonna harken back to I've been saying I could shoot through a hog plate, no problem, and I had an absolute dinosaur come in on me this weekend. I'm talking if I've ever seen a hog that's yes, close to 300 pounds, this hog was close to the 300, 250, 300 pounds. I mean, he was Russian absolutely boar. big, huge mm. Russian boar. He walked in like Genghis Khan, turned a couple of times <laughs> sideways, and brother, I mean, he wouldn't let. He, he ran off. Video, he ran off three other pigs, right? Uh-huh. That w- w- he wouldn't let him eat around. He was a giant boar hog. I drew back with my setup that Luis Gonzalez has built me, and I proceeded to shoot him high in the shoulder. <laughs> now, look, part of that's me missing my spot, but listen. I shot him right in the middle of the shoulder because I wanted to. I wanted to see exactly what happens. Yeah, that hog shook. Now, it, it almost knocked him all the way down. But when he got to his addle best, right, when he got up on his feet, right, he took off with my arrow, and my arrow might have went a foot into him, maybe maybe eight inches, right, into him. But it did there was way I've never seen an animal tote that much arrow after I hit him and him walked and run through the woods off with my arrow and I never got it back. I was more hurt that I never got my dang arrow that my brother Luis built me back. And I knew I'm like, Oh dude, I just, I've missed that so bad. I shot him for 26. He was 22. Uh, and and also, I had grabbed an, another broadhead and screwed it on there because I wanted to see if that broadhead worked in my system. Well, that arrow that Luis had built me was built for a 150-grain setup. I had a 125-grain uh, broadhead on there, so I was 25 grains light, already shooting four inches high, and I hit the I hit the rascal high. We planned for plan A, shooting him right through the bottom side of the shoulder, and, and busting his shoulder blade and all that. Not the dadgum plate that's above all of that and yeah. me shooting him high, right? So, but had I had had a 700 grain arrow, I don't know if that would have made a difference. Luis has shot a hog in the same type thing, not with a single bevel, same thing. Hit that hog, you know, in the very top part of the shoulder. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and he ran off with the Luis's arrow never to be seen again. So we get where you're coming from, brother. And yeah. we've all been there. So what we do going forward, we set up for plan B. 
when we hit heavy bone, can we come back from that? So and that may happen and it may not happen. We may not come back. You increase that. your, your chances. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. So there's, there's a couple other things that I wanted to mention here. Well, first of all, before I do that, Keenan, I, I just want to say, dude, great effort on yes. your back and all of that, man. Um, our tip of the hat to you for, you know, paying honor that. to that animal to try yeah. to find it. But at the same time, with that said, there's a couple of areas, though. The first time you shot it, that bull stopped at 40 yards out and stood there. Um, another one you should have had another can... arrow in that bull yeah. at that time. Yeah. Um, you know, I even though in your head you're thinking, oh, he's going to go down. If he's standing there like that and giving you that shot, put another arrow in that Until animal. Until they fall over. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Don't wait because 80 that, yards. I'm sending another one. And yeah. I mean, 90. I'm sending another one. You, you gotta, you gotta make sure, you know, and yeah. that's one way to do it. Then you good, see him walking good, off yeah. and now you're like wanting to try to get a shot and now it's too late. Yeah. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing was you made the comment, but that, and, and I have no doubt that you worked hard. I have no doubt that you trained hard. Um, and you studied for and that you prepared for the opportunity to only have it fall through your fingertips. However, you did not avoid possible failure points, man. And, and what I mean by that is the moment that you put a mechanical broadhead in, in, you set yourself up for a failure point right there. Yes. And, and it was a lesson learned, but, that again is after the fact because in your preparation you should have you know known that 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 unless a shot in the perfect and even at that man even at that I would never use uh, a mechanical because they do what they're designed to do they're designed to open up inside an animal so that keeps you from getting two holes we preach two holes and I, I you know. Look, I, do I know everything? Have I not made mistake? You know, am I mistake free? Absolutely not. That's why I'm sharing this with you, man. That's why we share failure points because we've had these failure points on this. So in your studies, in your preparation, your equipment, what you're using, now you've heard about the heavy arrows. Now you know about the broadheads and about the second shot there. But the other one is shot placement. You said that the shot looked and felt good. So you looked like you were shooting for that golden triangle or right up from that shoulder like you Behind would a, a white tail man and we always you know and go check out our shop placement um podcast. You on youtube you can see it on yes. our podcast but we go up that leg three to four inches back mid body man we are not aiming for that shoulder we want two holes through those ribs if he's quartering away we're aiming at the leg on the other side those types of things so even though you worked hard and you trained hard there were a couple things that you did not prepare yourself for and which were the most critical yeah when that shot hit that animal what was going to happen with that yeah. and where you hit that animal at right so you got a foot behind that shoulder brother absolutely. i'm telling you so, got a foot back there to yeah. get to them good lines. that's a hard that's one that's a hard one to get used to it's it's hard for me you know because i'm 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 used to shooting these pigs forward and low right right so i, oh, yeah. I can relate I can relate to, 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 but, but the anatomy of the animals are different. different. And, and so, I have a problem hunting pigs because I always yeah. want to shoot them further back, man. And that's yeah, not the, yeah, yeah. You know, right. that's yeah, not the, yeah. not the spot. So, so, 
I think, you know, you know, the spine is another issue, right? I mean, the, the way your spine is, I, depending on how big of a guy you are, if you got a bigger draw length, um, you know, you're probably under spine as well. So there is a lot of things that you can look into. Um, like Joe was saying, the YouTube channel, there's also a little deal where I talk a little bit about the arrows and, and how to kind of build your arrow setup, you know, according to you, because you got to understand, your bow, your arrows, it's everything designed is customized for each hunter. It's not like somebody else can grab my bow on my same arrow set up and shoot the same because it's not going to happen. We've tested this, you know, and, uh, so I, you know, you're more than welcome to email us if, if you need to. Yeah, reach out. Uh, Luis. Luis yeah, Luis at gmail.com. Uh, it's not sorry, Luis. At, it's not Luis. Um, it's Luis. I mean, he, he, he looks a little, you know, but, yeah. uh, but <laughs> it's, 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 it's Luis. L-U-I-S. L-U-I-S at com. Feel free to reach out, man. I, you know, I can call you back and we can, you know, I, I love talking about this, this subject and, and we'll, we'll try to figure out what works best for you. Look, man, this guy builds the baddest arrows I've ever shot in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got the, the kills to prove it. I've got the slow-mo motion of my arrows leaving. Uh, and I'm telling you, I put them to the test this weekend and you cannot <laughs> over, even though when you got the best setup, shot placement is the most important yeah, it's key. thing. Yeah. It happened to me as well. And it is, you and you could have, have even, you could have even had a well shot, uh, well placed shot arrow. And with that mechanical, you might, not, you might have still right. had some issue with penetration. And, and I watched Chav shoot a bull with a mechanical end. I was there. I watched him shoot a bull with a mechanical. He didn't hit a limb with his broadhead. He actually hit it with the Boy. tail of the arrow. It prematurely opened the broadhead. And this ain't no little bitty bull, brother. It's a thousand pound giant. I mean, it was an absolute honker of a bull. And when he hit that little limb, it opened that broadhead up. And when it hit that bull, he hit him in the 10 ring, dude. I'm not talking about the shoulder. I'm talking about the 10 ring. That bull another four inches, five inches of penetration, and we got a hard shot bull, and we're set, we'll celebrate. That arrow penetrated that far into that bull, and that bull's walking to the face if, of this earth today. That, it, like, hung there, bridge. right? Yeah, it, like, kind yeah, of... Yeah, it hung there, and then him and another bull got in a fight, and it came out in the middle of the fight. You know, so, I mean, it was crazy. And how far did we trail that bull on our hands and knees, Chav? Oh, we trailed it uphill... A long way. <laughs> <laughs> All the way to the top of the damn mountain. I mean, it was crazy how far that bull went. And he bled the whole way, man. You know, and, and look, man, we, we don't talk mess about other people's broadheads. You know, those mechanicals are good for what they do. Yeah. But when we make a mistake, I'm telling you, they, they make you feel like you feel right yeah. now, brother. Yeah, when you shoot a deer with a mechanical in the right spot, oh, it's devastating. Yeah. Yeah. So, with that said, um, we want to thank you, uh, Keenan, for your question. Yeah, man. Guys, um, so everybody else knows out there that, you know, that's our show today as far as the amount of time goes. We're going to continue on our questions and yep. we're going to go to Tatum Holiday, Adam Vesser, Ben Shadley, Graham Miller, and, and more than that. We're going to talk about, he wants to know about cold calling scenarios. Um, we have a guy, um, asking about, uh, um, sequences for, uh, for solo hunter, um, 
how to do that. We have people that are looking now moving to a rifle season and those strategies, how that differs. We talked a little bit about that tonight. And we have some things about wind and more items that we will have next week on next week's show. So, and who knows, guys, we maybe we'll do that one live. Maybe we'll do that one live on YouTube and get some questions from everybody else. We'll see what, what that looks like if that's possible. So, um, Gil. Close us out, man. Absolutely. Man, what an awesome show. Fantastic questions from our listeners out there, Joe. I love doing this because this is what the, the, the listeners want. They want to hear their, their questions on our show. They want to hear the answers from our success squad. I mean, these guys are the real deal. We've been through all of these things. Keenan, we, we feel for you, brother, but keep slinging them, man. Uh, get with, get with Luis. I promise you he can help you out. Guys, if you like what we're doing, Please subscribe, rate, and review us. you got to go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes to review us, and you can check out more elk hunting content at elkbros.com. And if you want to see some of our annex on YouTube, we got a YouTube channel, too. Y'all go check us out there. And just a reminder, if any of our listeners would like their questions answered on our show, just send your questions to info at elkbros.com. That's I-N-F-O at elkbros.com. Like we say down here in the Lone Star, state husbands kiss your wives wives kiss your husbands hug your babies keep your broad head sharp and your powder, your powder dry. dry and we'll see you next week right here on blue collar elk hunting and whose music whose music and for all our grinders out there here is some more music oh. from my brother from the east from the west mr tony Wintrip, to close out the show good night everybody peace Trips for five by fives and six by six. Whether there's snow or a bit of rain, all that mountainous terrain. I got a pair of boots that fit just right, and Phelps calls get them close to my sight. When I pull the string and I watch that carbon hit, I just elk it. Man, I just elk it. I just elk it. I waited 350 days. I watched the wind blowing from all ways. And I watched the path that he walked in the fall. And there's no failure in my head when all I'm tracking is red. With the fist pump to the sky when the beast is dead. I just elk it. Oh man, I just elk it. I just elk it.
The track is turning heads upside down. The cooler's on and he's gonna start chilling on down, down, down. I just elk it. Man, I just elk it. Oh, I just elk it. Come on.